Men, thanks for listening to our 920 Man Challenge podcast. These are Bible teachings that are meant to be discussed alongside other men in community at our Blankenbaker Man Challenge gathering, where we prioritize developing a competent and confident understanding of who Jesus is and authentic and intentional male relationships. We hope this teaching of God's Word grows your relationship with the Lord, and we urge you to unpack it in your relationship with others. Enjoy! Well, yeah, morning, fellas. So, uh, Judges 6, go ahead and turn there. Judges is after Joshua. It is uh, before Ruth. It's kind of, you know, if you're in the Psalms, you're too far. Kind of keep turning backwards if you're in... Exodus, Deuteronomy, wherever, you're not, you're not there yet. Keep turning. But we're, we're starting in Judges 6. Sam mentioned it, a, a series looking at the character of, of Gideon and the cycle of sin, slavery, and salvation that we find in the book of Judges. Um, and I'm going to kind of catch you up on verses 1 to 10 real quick because we're going we're gonna to teach through 11 through 24. But 1 to 10 um, sort of tells us the sin and the slavery part of where the Israelites are. So verse 1 in, in chapter 6 says, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And that's the way that sin is devi- defined consistently throughout the book of Judges. It's either they're doing evil in the eyes of the Lord or they're doing right in their own eyes. And as this cycle over and over and over again occurs, we see that this sin leads to, leads to slavery. And in this case... The Israelites are, are oppressed by, they're enslaved by a group of people called the Midianites. And for seven years, the Israelites are oppressed by the Midianites. They're coming in basically in harvest season, taking their food. Uh, the, the Israelites are hiding. They're weak and scattered. Uh, they're being oppressed by the Midianites. And after seven years of oppression, they finally, as Sam mentioned, cry out to God. They finally cry out to God. So there's this sin, there's this slavery, and they cry out for salvation. And what God gives them before our story today is first he he sends them a prophet and the prophet kind of helps them understand, hey, hey, just so you know, this slavery is self-inflicted. This enslavement, this, this oppression, this impoverishment that you're living within is brought about by your disobedience. I need you to know that, but I'm not just burying you in shame. Now I'm going to raise up a deliverer. And Gideon, in this case, in this season of the Israelite history, is the deliverer who God raises up. And today, uh, in the next five weeks, we're going to look at how God uses Gideon. Today, we're, we're specifically going to study the call of Gideon. God's call on Gideon to, um, to be a deliverer, to raise up as a, as a mighty warrior. So we're going to see God's call. We're going to see Gideon's response. And we're going to see God's promises uh, in light of <clears throat> Gideon's response. Let's start. I'm going to read verses 11 to 15. This is Judges chapter 6. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? 
My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. So here we see both God's call of Gideon and Gideon's response. Talk first about God's call. We see it in verses 11, 12, and 14. God is calling Gideon to be a mighty warrior who delivers the people of God from Midianite oppression, right? There's this call. Gideon's got a real clear call. You're going to be a mighty warrior who, through your leadership, is going to lead us out of oppression. But what's interesting about this passage, and as as we study Gideon furthermore, you'll kind of continue to see the reality of this, is that Gideon does not exhibit the characteristics of a mighty warrior. Like we don't find Gideon sharpening his sword. We don't find Gideon doing push-ups. We don't find Gideon putting some dude's head on a post. We find Gideon threshing wheat in a wine press. That's not where you thresh wheat, right? You, you press wine in a wine press. What's he doing in there? And it doesn't say it explicitly here, but as we examine the character of Gideon, we can infer it's likely that, that Gideon's hiding. And maybe tactfully so, right? These people were coming and taking what was uh, the Israelites for their own good. And so he's, he's basically kind of doing his work in private, in the quiet, in hiding. And the Lord comes and says, mighty warrior. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Though he has exhibited none of those traits. This is something we see all throughout the Bible. And one of my favorite things about the Lord is he loves to come to people and call them something that they are not yet in order that he might get the glory. But catch this, as soon as he says it, they become that. Even though Gideon's given no proof of being a mighty mighty warrior, as as soon as God calls him that, he becomes that. And we think of this Abraham. His name was Abram. Married to a woman who was barren for almost a century. And God says, you're not Abram, you're, you're Abraham now, because that name means father of many nations. It wasn't true in that moment, but now you and I at church camp growing up, if you were a part of the church, likely saying, Father Abraham had many sons, it it became true. Jesus meets Simon. He says, I'm going to call you Peter. Petros means rock. And later in the New Testament, we find out that Jesus is saying to Peter, you are going to be the rock on which I build my church. Jesus comes and tells us things about ourselves That we might not say we've got the qualifications to be true, but as soon as he says it, it's true. And so I'm going to ask you guys to discuss this at tables today. What's God calling you to? God calls Gideon something, and in calling him something, he's calling him to something. What is God calling you to? Where is he calling you to trust him? Where is he calling you to obey him? And if you're like me, you hear that and you're like, honestly, I'd love to know what he's calling me to. it'd be a pretty good deal if an angel landed on my back porch and it's like, hey man, here's your next three steps, go get them, you know, wouldn't that be great? I think it's it's acceptable in my mind. I look at this and I say, that that seems kind of, I don't know what he's calling me to. And I want you to catch the heart of what's going on in the nation of Israel here. Disobedience is why they are where they are. God looks at Gideon and calls him to obedience. The emphasis here is on obedience, and our knowledge always exceeds our obedience. We always know better than we're doing. Does that make sense? Like we, we I don't, at least if you don't think that way, boy, there's, there's some, 
pride to undo there, but we always know better than what we actually do in regards to obedience. And so I want you to, I'm going to just list off things that God might be calling you to and want you to kind of churn on this. And then when you get to your tables, be honest uh, about what you think God is calling you to in obedience. Where is God calling you to trust him as we examine Gideon's call? He might be calling you to put your faith in him for the very first time, trusting that Jesus was Lord and Savior. He might be calling you to share the gospel with a coworker, or your roommate, or a family member. He might be calling you to speak up about the unethical means of gaining revenue in your workplace. He might be calling you to open your Bible before you open Twitter. He might be calling you to confess sexual sin, a pattern of sexual sin, to bring sin to light so that Jesus can, can work in it. He might be calling you to reallocate your spending in a way that, that prioritizes honoring God over giving yourself comfort. He might be calling you to apologize to your kids for being short-tempered. He might be calling you to ask your wife to join you in prayer before bed. He might be asking you, he might be calling you to wait, to cling to him in a season of darkness, of sorrow, of doubt. He, he might just be calling you to, to, to keep putting your hope in him despite all the circumstances surrounding. <clears throat> he might be calling you to leave your family, your friends, your hometown, your job, and your brothers, <clears throat> and the roads that you know. He might be calling you to go do something new somewhere else, to serve where, the, where need is. I don't know what the Lord's calling you to today, but he does. He knows. And where our knowledge exceeds our obedience, you probably know too. And if you don't know, I'll, I'll be praying that the Spirit would either clarify or affirm what it is that he's calling you to, and that you would honestly share that at your table with your men this morning. So God's call of Gideon to be a mighty warrior who brings the deliverance of Israel. So how, how does Gideon respond to this call? <clears throat> we catch this in verses 13 and verse 15. Um, and they're both different, but they, they, Gideon's response is the same in this way. Both of his responses are doubt. Gideon responds to God's call on him to be obedient, to take a next step of faith with doubt. And I am personally thankful, and Burke mentioned it earlier, I'm personally thankful that there are um, people in the Bible who doubt. Because that, that gives me the comfort of, of two things. One, knowing I'm not alone. Right? I'm not the only one who's ever wrestled with this. But two, knowing if this is God's word, he's purposely, willingly, eagerly put people in here who wrestle with doubt. It's his choice. To highlight Gideon and for us to say, hey, here's a God who is called to do God's will. Let, the, let there be some comfort for any of you who are, who are doubters. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about doubt and let that, <clears throat> not all doubt is intellectual. And so as you kind of discern what types of doubts prevent you from fulfilling the call that God's put on your life, be comforted in the fact that Gideon was a doubter, that Thomas was a doubter, that Mary was a doubter, that Moses was a doubter. And yet, despite all their doubts, the Lord called them, used them, and brought glory to himself through them. There are two categories of, of Gideon's doubt here, though. The first we find in verse 13, 
He says, pardon me, my Lord. So God said, the Lord is with you, mighty, mighty warrior. He says, pardon me, my Lord. He's <laughs> a kind way. There's some, there's some respect there. And, but then he says, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. Gideon receives a call. And in response to the call, he says, as I look around, I don't understand why this is happening. Why, why has all this happened? Where are the wonders you performed for our ancestors? Have you ever felt that way, men? I've heard it done for so-and-so. I don't know if I've experienced it. I don't know if he's done it for me. When are you going to do for me? When are you going to do for us what you did for them? This is Gideon looking at the Exodus account. Sam mentioned that earlier when God delivered people out of the, the, the Israelites out of the slavery and bondage within Egypt. And he's saying, when, when are you going to do for them or do for me what you did for them? What proof do I have that you're with us? Catch that line there. Uh, <clears throat> the Lord has abandoned us. He looks at his circumstances, and he makes a conclusion, I've been abandoned by the Lord. You ever been there? <laughs> have, you, have you ever doubted God? That's the first category of, of doubt, is doubt in God. He's called you to something, he's said something about who you are, and your immediate response, your inclination, what unfortunately bubbles up in your chest, is doubt in God. <clears throat> Be comforted. I mentioned it. You're not alone in that doubt. And because God puts it in his word, that says something about who he is. It says that he sees, that he knows, that he cares, and that he's willing to work with you. He's eager. He's desirous to work with you amidst your doubts. So there's this category of doubt in God. Verse 15 gives us another type of doubt that, that Gideon's wrestling with in light of his call. He says, pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. But how can, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. He says, I'm the, I'm the least person in a family from the weakest clan in a tribe that we don't talk about too much. I'm the worst player on the worst team in a league that you haven't heard of. How could you, how could you God, Use someone like me. So he doubts in God, but he also has got this doubt in himself. That's category two, is this self-doubt that Gideon honestly verbalizes. And I hope we will at our tables today. Do you, do you wrestle with this type of doubt? Have you ever felt unqualified by your background? Like your, your spiritual resume doesn't fit the bill of what God is maybe calling you to. You're too small, you're too weak. Your faith's not big enough. You're too broken. Your past has got too many big sins in the way, too many hurdles for the Lord to jump. Gideon has these doubts about himself. He has these doubts about God. He verbalizes them to God. And what a, what a great <laughs> encouragement that this man in the Bible is honest about his doubts with God. And so that's our second question today when we go to tables is what, what doubts about God or about yourself keep you from trusting in him? Whether it's you're buried in shame of your own sin, whether it's intellectual hurdles, whether it's uh, the sense of inadequacy, or whether it's a, a circumstantial despair, 
What doubts are keeping you today from trusting the Lord to do what he's called you to do, to be who he's called you to be, to walk by the Spirit, to walk in light of who his Son is? Now, thankfully, even though Gideon exhibits doubts, God doesn't leave Gideon to wither up in his doubts, nor does he leave us to wither up in our doubts. God gives three promises. That's how we're going to finish this passage. Three promises to Gideon that we can take in light of our doubts, in order that we might fulfill the calling that God's given us. The first one is in verse 16. So Gideon's doubt, 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 doubt. God says, The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. So the first and most important promise that God gives us in order that our callings might be fulfilled is his presence. These are going to be alliterative because I'm leaving and I might as well finish with three Ps. So P number one, presence. God gives us his presence. Gideon asks, remember those questions. He asks, when, what, where, why, how? And God gives none of those answers in this passage. That doesn't mean that's a blanket statement that he never will. But God looks at those questions and says, who is going to be with you? Because then the what, the when, the why, the how, all of those things dissipate because they're, they're transcended by the transcendent. Who will be with you? I will. God looks at Gideon and says, you know what you need to answer this call? You know what you need to be the man that I created you to be? You need me. And that's that's the Bible, fellas. That's the gospel. That's Christianity. That is the whole thing tied up in in a verse. You need my presence. And there are two things I kind of want us to catch from this, okay? First is um, God's plan for saving his people is dependent on his presence, right? So the, the Midianites have oppressed Israel. They're in terrible impoverishment. They cry out to the Lord. And God doesn't say, hey, Gideon, you know, start acting like a warrior. Start doing your push-ups. Start sharpening your sword. He says, no, you are a mighty warrior. And these things will be accomplished because I will be with you. By my presence and my work, people will be saved. My people, the people who I've called to me, are going to be saved because I will be with them. And here's where we need to be faithful readers of God's word. God's promising his presence as the means of salvation to the people of God. And Jesus says in the New Testament, at the Old Testament, John 5, 39, he says, the Old Testament, you search the scriptures looking for me, and it is they that testify about who I am. So Jesus says that Judges 6 testifies about who he is. He says elsewhere in the Gospels that he is the fulfillment of what is written in the scriptures. So we get to look at this text and say, okay, We've, we've got it better than Gideon did. He got to talk with an angel in real life, right? That seems like a plus. <laughs> but the resurrected Son of God says that was written to testify about who I am. And so do you see where the, the bridge is here from Gideon in this moment to the gospel that you and I accept thousands of years later? In our sin, much like the Israelites under Midianite rule, we, we forget We forsake God and are in need of saving. And what was God's plan? What was God's plan for you and for me? Jesus, the Son of God, who is God, came and was present. 
He was incarnate. He was born of a virgin. He walked on this earth. He lived a sinless life. He died a death on a cross that you and I ought to have died in our place, atoning for our sins. He was dead. He resurrected on this earth, came back to life, and said in his resurrection, I'm going to be with you to the very end of the age. And then he fulfilled that promise by sending his spirit to the church so that anybody who believes in him is given the gift of the Holy Spirit, that we are temples of the Holy Spirit, the living God lives inside of us. And so this room, this morning, knowing some of you men at the very least believe the presence of God's here. God's plan wasn't for you or for me to try harder, to do better, to work our way to him. He came to us. He does it with Gideon and he does it with us. And we need not miss the good news that God's presence of Gideon is not a 3,000-year-old promise. It's one promise to you and me today. God's plan for saving his people is dependent on his presence. Second thing about God's presence is that God qualifies the called by giving us his presence. God qualifies the called by giving us his presence. So um, Gideon was unqualified. Like, I don't think verse 15 was false humility. We live in a day and age where humility, um, (laughs) when people are honest about weakness, it's typically responded with something kind of therapeutic. No, Gideon, you're not weak. Your family's big and strong, and you're a big boy. (laughs) What does God say here? None of that. Gideon is not qualified to this calling. But God's presence qualifies him for the calling. There's the the tricky language of um, God does not call the qualified, but he qualifies the called. That's not my line, it's someone else's. It's a great and important reminder as we look at biblical characters. And in this specific passage, we learn that it is God's presence that gives Gideon all that he needs in order to do what God has called him to. It makes clear the presence of God allows us to trust, obey, and faithfully fulfill the, the call that God has placed on us. We see this all throughout Scripture. Psalm 23, the psalmist writes, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, So they're in circumstantial despair. They can't see around them. I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. The presence of God allows the psalmist to fulfill their calling, to keep walking in the pilgrimage of faith. Joshua 1. Joshua is called to lead the people into the promised land. It's a daunting and and enormous task. And God says, do not be afraid. Only be strong and very courageous, for I will be with you. God's presence equips Joshua to do what he's called to do. In Isaiah 43, God's speaking, and he says, Those who are overcome by the waves, amidst the fire, you will not perish, because I will be with you. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into a fire, thrown into the furnace. But there's a fourth. Nebuchadnezzar looks in and says it. I thought there were only three. There's four of them in there, and one of them looks like a son of God. God was present, and because he was present, he allowed them to fulfill their calling, and that is true for you and I today. There's a song that I, uh, I love and listen to and has fueled my faith in this season called Trackless Sea. And the, the chorus is two lines. It says, Fearless, I walk the trackless sea, which is an allusion to Psalm 77, God's walking on the waters, and they don't see his footprints, but they know that he's acting. 
Fearless I walk the trackless sea. All my life is life with thee. The presence of God equips us. It saves us by Jesus' coming, and it's, if, if we believe in who he is, the spirit within us equips us to do exactly what we're called to do. So God's first promise to us is his presence. Verses 17 to 21 give us the second promise here. So Gideon replied, God says, I will be with you. Gideon replied, if now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. The Lord said, I will wait until you return. Gideon went inside, prepared a young goat, and from an ephah of flour he made bread without yeast. Putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot, he brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock, and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of the staff that was in his hand. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. So <laughs> if you don't follow that, it's a little bit weird. It's different than what we would do in, in um, our day and age and how we interact with God, likely. But essentially what happens is Gideon is told by God, I will be with you. And Gideon's response is, is it really you, Lord? Is it really you? And we'll see Gideon's faith throughout the rest of this series. Um, he needs lots of reassurance. And I'm not going to use that to condemn him. I'll, I'll look at Mark 9, where the father who wants his son healed, Jesus says, if you believe, I'll heal him. And, and the, son, or the father says, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. And I think that's what Gideon's saying here. Is, I, I think this is you, Lord. Will you help me know that it is you? Will you help me to trust you? And how does God respond? That's, I don't want us to examine Gideon here as much as I want us to see the Lord's response. Gideon does this religious ceremony. The angel partakes in that. God waits on him. And then at the end of the religious ceremony, fire. Supernatural. How does God respond to our need to know it's him is provision. That's the second promise. God provides for Gideon the faith that he will need to fulfill his calling. He gives everything that Gideon needs in order to, to do what God's called him to. And I think just a, an implicit truth that we need to gather from that is that um, the reality is there's nothing that you don't have right now. If you're a believer, there's nothing you don't have right now that you need in order to glorify him. He's, he's constantly giving you exactly what you need in order that you can continue to grow in your faith and trust and obedience to him. So God promises his presence. He promises provision. And here, I, I think, I just want to point this out, the Lord's patience here. He says, I will wait until you return. Essentially, God, God's speaking with Gideon. <laughs> the angel of the Lord is speaking with Gideon. And Gideon says, could you show me one more thing? And God's patient. He's kind. He's willing because he, he provides what we need. Finally, verses 22 to 24. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Alas, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace. Do not be afraid. You're not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is Peace. And to this day, it stands in Ophrah of the Abiezrites. 
So God gives his presence to Gideon, gives his provision. And Gideon's response here is fear. Basically, he says, will you show me that it's you? And the Lord reveals himself more so. And Gideon's response at this magnificent moment is horror. <laughs> this is something we, again, as, as 21st century Americans have a hard time understanding. What's he afraid of? Like, he's talking to God. But I think a couple analogies. One, um, Gideon's response is, I think, similar to what our response would be the closer we got to the sun. Right? Like, it's beautiful. You're in a spaceship, you're headed toward the sun. The closer you get, the hotter it gets, the more of its glory and, and amazing nature that you see, the, the more you're getting a little bit nervous. You're starting to sweat because it's hot, but you're also starting to sweat because that, that thing is too good for me. It's too big for me. I'm not worthy of that. I think Gideon's experiencing something similar here. In the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, the, the children and in, in, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, the, the children have, are just learning about Aslan, who is, is this Christ-like messianic figure throughout the Chronicles. And um, I think it's Susan. Susan hears about uh, who Aslan is and says, hey, he, he's a lion? I'm, I'm a person. He's a lion. Is, is he safe? And he's, she's speaking with a beaver because it's not real life. <laughs> the beaver says to her, safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And so Gideon, I, I just want us to stop it. There's, a, there's something about God's holiness that ought to evoke austerity, reverence, holy fear in him. And that's what Gideon does. He sees the Lord work, and he's not comforted immediately. He's horrified, but then God gives him the third promise he's offering us, peace. He gives his presence, he gives his provision, and he says, Peace. Do not be afraid. You're not going to die. And again, this is peace we see all throughout Scripture. Philippians 4 tells us that in Christ we have peace that surpasses understanding. It's not found in our capacity to rationalize. It is a supernatural gift to empower us to do what we're called to do. Sam and I got coffee last week, and um, we were talking about my transition and he said, encouragingly, it won't sound like encouragement. He said, encouragingly, what you're doing, you have to be a moron to do it. <laughs> your wife's due with your second kid in two months, and you're leaving your family, your friends, your support system, your doctors, your hospitals, your job, your health care, your country, your sense of normality. You're leaving all of those things. That's moronic, right? And it is, <laughs> and it should steal our peace. But what God has offered Susan and I is peace. And that's not, I want to I help you see the distinction. That's not emotional peace. There is emotional peace, but it transcends that. We're confident in what God's called us to. We're confident because he's, he's shown us his presence. He's shown us his provision. And we are, what our hope is in is that when we go across the border and serve in a new place with new people, that his presence and his provision will be there waiting for us. I got coffee with a guy yesterday. Brian Varner said, God's going to be with you in this. And there's, there's peace in that, right? It's not emotional serenity. It's not Zen. It's not Buddhism. It's not, it's not working up some felt reality. 
It's confidence that God is who he says he is, and that's the peace that surpasses understanding. That's what, what God in his grace gives us to do things in faith beyond what we would ever do on our own. It's a supernatural gift. God gives us his presence, his provision, his peace. So as you consider today at your tables, God's call on you to trust him. I hope you'll cling to these promises. God's presence, God's promise to provide all that you need, his promise of peace that surpasses understanding. And here's how you can know that he'll, um, he'll keep these promises. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says that all of God's promises are yes in Jesus Christ. Which means these three promises to Gideon and Gideon's call to be raised up as a deliverer of God's people from the oppression of the Midianites. That's something we can learn from and be nourished by today. Because at infinite cost to himself... Jesus came and was present among us. John 14, he, he dwelt, or 114, he dwelt among us. At infinite cost, in, in immeasurable humility, he provided our greatest need in reconciliation to God. And as a result of him coming and giving us all that we need, we can walk in the peace that he offers. So as I sign off from this ministry assignment, which, man, I love you and I'm grateful to have served here, to have been grown by, I am saddened to go. Know that saddened to go, but not fearful at all for you or for what the future holds here of this church and the way that the Lord's working. As I sign off, I hope you know, I'm going clinging to these three promises. I'm hoping in the presence of God in a faraway country. I'm, I'm praying for his provision to be made known to me and for his peace to be the fuel of faith that I walk in day by day. And I pray the same for you. Let's pray together. Father, I do thank you for these men. Goodness, you know I am, I know you better because of them. I am uh, more like your son, Jesus, because of them. I am more confident in who you are because of them. I've got more hope in what you've called me to, uh, that you'll be faithful on the other side of it because of them. And I pray this morning that as they head to tables, Lord, by your Spirit's power that you would help these men discern the calling that you've given to each of them. No matter how small or how grandiose it might seem in the world's eyes, I pray that you would give them clarity of your calling. And whatever doubts are in the way of that, as they confess them and are honest with one another, that they would um, lay those on the table and that you might heal them and redeem them and let them see your faithfulness in the midst of those doubts. I pray that as they share experiences of your presence, provision, and peace in the past, that our faith is stirred up and that each man in this room would leave today trusting you more, myself included. Would you do that by the power of your spirit to the glory of Jesus? It's in his name that we are thankfully praying all these things. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's Bible teaching from Man Challenge at the Blankenbaker campus of Southeast Christian Church. For more information on how to get involved, reach out to us via the email address in our podcast description or find us on social media. 